Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Gary Witta. Gary is a screenwriter, author, comic book writer, and video game writer. His works include Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, Star Wars Rebels, The Book of Eli, After Earth, which he co-wrote with M. Night Shyamalan, Telltale Games, The Walking Dead, Marvel's The Last Jedi comic book adaptation, and Abomination, Gary's debut novel. Gary, that is a very impressive resume, and we are honored to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. My first question is usually, where are you in the world right now? But I understand these days, the answer to that question is almost always home. So tell us, where in the world is home for you right now? I live in uh, in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, which is a good place to be right now because we uh, seem to be doing very, very well uh, with flattening the curve. You know, we were the first city in the country to declare an emergency, first city in the in the country to have a stay-at-home order, and we've been very good about complying with that. And as a result, our our curve is looking better than pretty much anywhere else in the nation right now. So we're all all very proud of that right now, making the best of a of a terrible situation. Uh, but yeah, I'm originally from, from my accent, uh, I'm originally from London, England. I was uh, born there back in 1972. Oh my goodness. I've li- actually lived half my life here now. I moved to the US in uh, 96 and just celebrated my uh, 24th anniversary of living in the United States. So I'm a dual national, kind of half English, half American. Prior to the quarantine, how did being based in San Francisco affect you working in the film and TV industry? Obviously, a lot of gigs probably happen in LA. I believe that Lucasfilm is based in somewhere around San Francisco. Tell us how location affects you. Well, when I first moved out here, it wasn't actually to uh, move to, to Hollywood or pursue a Hollywood career. I used to be a, uh, a journalist in the video games world. And uh, I edited a magazine called PC Gamer uh, back in the UK. And when they launched a US edition of that magazine, uh, it was based in San Francisco. And I actually moved out here initially to uh, kind of work on that. And then when my career changed a few years later, I decided to try my hand at becoming a screenwriter. I decided that it wasn't necessary to move like the additional, you know, 500 miles or whatever it is to LA. I, I wanted to see if I could do it from here. I like LA. I've lived in LA before, but I just, I slightly prefer San Francisco, just that bit, that bit better. And it was kind of a conscious uh, trade-off that I, I decided to make. I didn't want to live in LA. I prefer to live here, but also very conscious of the fact that uh, by not living in LA, kind of boots on the ground every day, it can make things a little bit more difficult. I'm not, you know, I can't just jump over, run over to a studio and go to a studio meeting at the drop of a hat. A lot of things I usually would do in person in the room, I do over the phone or over Zoom or Skype or whatever, which of course, everyone's doing that now. So the kind of playing field right. has been leveled from my perspective. But for a while, anytime an opportunity came up, I would have to make a decision. Is this something that I can just do over the phone? Or do I, is it something that I care enough about that I want to make the effort to go down to LA and be in the room. Because I think you always give a better account of yourself and, and leave a better impression if you're actually in the room rather than just a voice on the phone or a face on Skype or whatever. So that is something that I've you know kind of wrestled with and thought about my 
entire career. But, you know, I'm pretty established now. People know who I am, so it doesn't really matter that much that I'm, you know, 500 miles away. People know where to find me. But it is, it is, I would say, the most common question alongside, you know, how do I get an agent or how do I get anyone to read my work is do I need to move to L.A.? And the vast majority of writers, almost all of them, will tell you yes. And it's hard for me to disagree with that, even though I am kind of a living exception to the rule there were different things that made it a little bit easier for me to do. The fact, if I lived in Ohio or, you know, somewhere like that, I probably would have moved to LA by now because it's just not feasible to be so far away from LA that you're not available ever to be in a room or, you know, to attend a meeting or especially if you want to work in television, it really, really is absolutely imperative that you live in LA because that's a much more boots on the ground kind of business than film. But yeah, not living in LA, but being close enough to it that I can always get down there, you know, and drop a bat if needed, is a compromise that I have have learned to live with, and I'm I'm fairly happy with how it's turned out. And tell us, how is the film industry right now being affected by what's going on? I imagine production has halted for the most part. What is development happening? Are you in talks? I mean, I know there's probably stuff you can and cannot talk about, but is the industry still moving? Well, production is is pretty much completely shut down at this point. Uh, the only thing that's that's uh, in terms of production that's still moving forward is animation, which, as you can imagine, is is largely immune to this uh, because animation is largely produced, you know, indoors anyway. You know, animators sit at their desks. They can and actors will often literally kind of phone in their their lines from their own studios, private recording studios that they built in their in their homes, and so animation is is still moving full steam ahead. In fact, there's a big focus on animation right now because people desperately want content they can't go out into the street and film it with a camera and so they're looking at animated uh, instead my feeling is you're going to see a lot of animation in the next year or two as people kind of lean into that as a way to kind of work around the current production problem from my point of view though i'm always developing things it really hasn't changed at all in fact i'm busier than ever i'm i'm very fortunate to be in a business or in a line of work i should say that is largely uh, insulated against this i work from home anyway so everyone everyone right now who's you know discovering the joys of working in their sweatpants welcome to my life that's half the reason why i have this job is i don't have to wear real trousers and i can work from home and so you know and, and everyone's working on zoom and skype and facetime and again that's that's very natural to me because uh, i'm used to i'm used to calling into meetings and conference calls and zooms and things like that all the time and even though there's nothing in production, the studios still know that, you know, this coronavirus, thank God, is not going to last forever. At some point, you know, maybe however many months from now, we don't know, but life will go back to some kind of normal. And people will want to go to the theaters again, and they're going to want to turn on the TV and watch something that isn't a rerun. And so, you know, the development pipeline, if anything, is busier than ever because they are going to want to have so the, the minute that the production crews are able to go back out and start making things, they're going to need things to make. So it's it's my job and the job of uh, writers and other creatives out there right now to keep the development pipeline full of stuff that is ready to go once production resumes. Before we talk process, tell us about your origin story. So you briefly mentioned about how you moved to San Francisco in your early days. So tell us, did you always want to be a writer? What was your career trajectory leading up to being a writer for major motion pictures? Writing was pretty much the only thing I was ever good at. Uh, or was interested in when I was a kid. I wasn't really a very good student. I didn't like going to school, but I did like to write and I liked to imagine other worlds. And I, I loved, I grew up, you know, on Star Wars and Star Trek and Doctor Who and Blake Seven and Battlestar Galactica and all the same stuff that kids in my generation grew up on. A lot of imported American media. You know, we, 
in the UK, we have, you know, our own science fiction, but a lot of the stuff that I was really interested in was, you know, Star Wars and, and stuff like that that was that we imported from the US. So I grew up, you know, like all the kids of that generation, loving that stuff, uh, obsessed with it, reading every comic book I could, playing every video game I could find, uh, watching every nerdy movie and TV show, and I you know, grew up Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all this kind of stuff. And it was all I was ever really interested in, in doing uh, professionally. It was the only thing I ever had any aptitude for. I, I actually enjoy, I hated schoolwork, but I liked to write. I would write my own little short stories and, and things like that. And I love video games as well. Uh, and, and I originally toyed with the idea of making my own video games, like being a games programmer or something like that. But my, my brain is just not wired that way. I'm no good at mathematics or science or programming or logical things like that. So the idea of me making my own games always kind of felt like a non-starter for me. But I used to also read a lot of video game magazines. And I thought, oh, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can like write about video games and review them and do things like that. And eventually, when I was about 15, 16 years old, I got my first job working on an old uh, Commodore Computers magazine reviewing Commodore 64 and Amiga games. It would have been back in like 1988. And that's how I got my foot in the door in the video game world. And at that point, once that career started, I kind of forgot about like the Hollywood thing. Like I, I remember you know, thinking I, I would love to be like a, a screenwriter. I would love to work in video games. And like whichever one of those, if even one of those works out, I'll be thrilled. And then when one did, I just kind of thought, well, okay, this is the track that I'm on. And I was on that track for about 12, 13 years, very, very happily. Ended up becoming editor-in-chief of PC Gamer, which at the time was like the biggest selling games magazine in the world. And it was really successful. And I, was having a, I had a great career. And I wish I could tell you, that I had the courage to say, you know what, this has been a great career, but I feel like I could do more. Like, let's 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 gamble all this and, and go for the big win and quit my job and become a Hollywood screenwriter. That's not that's not what happened at all. I don't think I ever would have had the courage uh, to do that at all. But uh, I got laid off around the time of the dot com crash, at the, uh, around two thousand two thousand one. A lot of people lost their jobs. I lost mine. Uh, I was on the scrap heap. I had about enough money saved up uh, to live very frugally for about a year. If I just kind of ate, you know, chunky soup and things like that, and nothing, nothing like that for a year, just drank tap water, and I thought, okay, I can, I've got a year to figure out what I want to do next, and I could very easily, I think, have gotten back on the same train that I was on. I had a pretty good resume in the video games world. I could have got a job at another magazine or a website or something like that. But I also saw it as an opportunity. Like, hi, I've been, I've been, I never would have got off this train voluntarily, but I've been kicked off the train, and now I'm looking around and thinking, well. Is this an opportunity to get back on the same train or maybe try something else? Now that my hand has been kind of forced, you know, it kind of gives you an opportunity to think in a broader context about what you really want to be doing. And I thought, well, I've got a year. Let's give this a try. And I started writing screenplays and I wrote a lot of them, each one slightly less terrible than the last until I had one that I thought I wouldn't be embarrassed uh, to show to someone. And I sent that off to a bunch of different talent. Now, I can't remember even where I found these resources now. I found a list of management companies. As you know, agents won't read your script. They'll just send it back to you. But there are management companies and producers out there who are always looking for new material and whoever the next you know, uh, cool writer might be. And I found a list of those companies. And I sent, sent off my, my script. And I got a call on uh, a Sunday afternoon from a guy called Lawrence Mattis, who runs a very big management company called Circle of Confusion. And I'm still with Lawrence today. He called me back in what would have been like, I don't know, 2002, something like that, and said, I'm halfway through reading your script, and I already know I want to sign you because he really, really likes the writing. And that's how I got my, my foot in the door. And that was the beginning of my Hollywood career. Moving along to process, we usually frame our episodes around specific themes. 
In this case, I would love to focus on writing a screenplay. Perhaps we can compare the process of adapting an existing IP, like Star Wars Rogue One, to writing an original script using, let's say, the Book of Eli as an example. Are you cool with uh, schooling us on that? Yeah, sure. You know, in terms of the actual process, like the day-to-day -day writing of pages and how you prepare to write the script in terms of structuring and outlining and things like that, my process it doesn't really isn't really any different in terms of if it's an original or if it's you know a piece of someone else's property the, the biggest difference would be for example when i worked on star wars when i was developing that story i didn't do it alone that was that was done with you know i went in and pitched some ideas but as soon as they hired me i immediately immediately on star wars entered a collaborative process with gareth edwards the director who was hired immediately after me and with uh, the Lucasfilm story development people. And it was, a, you know, we would sit around in a room and, and brainstorm ideas, and I would go away and write pages, you know, for the outline based on that. And then once they approved the outline, I went away uh, and wrote a script. So, you know, it's, it's, it's more collaborative in that sense. And also, you know, you're just very aware of the fact that you're playing in someone else's sandbox. I don't own Star Wars. I'm just privileged enough to have been asked to help contribute a piece to it. And so, you know, you're always very conscious of the parameters, like, you know, the, the, the language of Star Wars and, and what it means to people and the, and the themes. And, you know, there's this kind of like an unwritten list of rules of like what is Star Wars and what isn't. And what was tricky about working on the, um, on the first standalone on uh, Rogue One was that, you know, they, they specifically wanted us to kind of expand that world. It's like, you know, don't, they kept saying to us, don't feel restricted by what Star Wars has been in the past, the opportunity with these with these standalone movies is to is to expand the parameters of that and you can do things in this world that haven't been done in star wars before and you know i think we were able to kind of seize that opportunity and that was really really cool uh again at the same time there are many many things that i might have done with an original piece that i did with star wars because again it's the the, the parameters are you can bend the edges of star wars but you can't break them there are certain things that just don't belong in star wars and you know, you want to make sure that whatever you write fits inside of that, inside of that sandbox. When I write an original, obviously I can do absolutely anything I want. When I wrote Eli, that was a completely solo process. That was just me locked in a room, 12 hours a day, bashing out pages. And the only person I was collaborating with, you know, was, was myself. And it wasn't until the movie was sold to Warner Brothers that the collaborative part of the process begins because then at that point, of course, you, you start going into rewrites and you're no longer the only voice in the room. And that, that can be a really tough transition, especially when you're writing a spec, you know, in, in however many weeks or months you may be developing your spec, it's really most likely, unless you write with a partner or whatever, going to be just you. And you, and you are the sole creative authority on the creation of this world and how the story develops and what the characters do, say, and think. As soon as you sell it, that's brilliant. But, you know, just remember, as soon as you sell it, you no longer own it. It's just I keep telling people all the time, it's like selling a car. If I tried to sell you a car and you paid me good money for that car, I no longer get to say to you, well, okay, now that you've bought it, you're not allowed to, you know, change the, the paint job or uh, make any changes to it. You can do whatever you want. You can drive off a cliff if you want. It's your car. I wish you the best of luck with it. And the script is no different. Once I sell it to you, it becomes the studio's property and i am now just a writer for hire the writer who created it but still just another writer uh, for hire and then actors and producers and directors and all kinds of other people come along and they all have their opinions and most of the time those people are smarter than you because they've been doing it for a long time denzel's made however many movies 30 something films at this point so when he comes in and says i think this you should probably pay attention because he knows a lot more about filmmaking 
and how to make successful films than I did at that point. It was the first film that I had sold. So I really took it as an opportunity to kind of listen and learn from the people around me, uh, very, very smart filmmakers. But there, there is also a little bit of an adjustment from, you know, going from being the only voice in the room to being uh, one of many. And again, the, whatever creative uh, equity you may have uh, that may lie in the fact that you created the script doesn't really mean very much after the script is sold. It then becomes your job, just like on an adaptation, to try and stay on the train for as long as possible. Because if they decide that you know, you've taken the script as far as you can go and they want someone else to come in and work on it, that's going to happen. So it's uh, you know, kind of fraught with peril in either scenario. You mentioned how you were brought on board for Rogue One. How did that come about? How did they choose you? And whereabouts was it as far as the Star Wars story branding? Did they know that it was going to be called a Star Wars story at that time? And where was the head at that point? When they first brought me in, nobody knew anything. I mean, internally at Lucasfilm they did, but when I first had the, when I first met with them at Lucasfilm, I had no idea what was going on. They, Disney had just all the, all that was all that was known publicly at the time was that Disney had bought Lucasfilm, that they were going to do episodes seven, eight, and nine. This was even before JJ was announced. I think the only thing that had been announced was that Michael Arndt was was working on the new on the new scripts, and that was all that had been announced. So there was no talk of standalone films. I mean, it was it was kind of obvious that there were going to be other things. That once Disney had bought it, they weren't going to limit themselves to just making movies. I'm sure there would be, you know, it wasn't difficult to imagine there would be TV, as there is now TV, video games, as there are, you know, as there are video games, comic books, novels, all kinds, all the things that they eventually went on to do. Like it was pretty easy to predict that they were going to do all of those things, but nobody knew the details behind what they were doing. So when I went, when I first went in and met, I honestly imagined, like, given kind of my status as a writer, I'd written the Book of Eli, but I had just come off. After Earth, which is a colossal flop and a big critical failure, I think it was that they, that they liked Eli, and they were really kind of working off of that. And they had me come in, and I talked to them about what a big Star Wars fan I I was and am because you know I, I genuinely uh, am one of those nerds. And I guess said the right things in the room because after a few days, they they called me back and sent me a document, this one page thing that was called Destroyer of Worlds, and it was like a one page pitch for you know, what would go on to be the story of Rogue One. Basically, hey, let's tell the story of the rebels who stole the Death Star plans. Basically, let's tell the story of the opening crawl from A New Hope. And I just thought that was a fantastic idea. And I was, I was blown away by the, by the fact that they were actually considering me for one of the major feature films. I, I thought they might have had me in for like a novel or a comic book or a video game or something. I, don't know, I would have been thrilled to do any of those things because it's Star Wars. Uh, but I never imagined that they would be considering me for... A feature film. Obviously, as soon as they offered me that, I grabbed onto it. Uh, went back in and pitched some ideas, and uh, met Gareth, the director, and it all kind of snowballed from there. As far as the Book of Eli, so we covered kind of how you got involved with Rogue One. How did the inception of the Book of Eli begin in your mind? Where did you get the idea to write that? Where does it come from? And what made you decide to pursue writing the full script? You know, it's funny because it's, it's such an important movie in, in my career. It's really the, 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 that movie is the reason why I have a career. And when I, when I think, you know, so many people ask me that same question, but when I think back to the very, very genesis of it, it's, it's kind of hard to, to zero in on. Like, there wasn't like one eureka moment while I, was, while I was having a shower or anything like that. I can tell you like where, kind of how it assembled. You know, I, I grew up loving uh, all kinds of movies, but I really loved uh, Westerns. I loved the, the Man With No Name, Clint Eastwood movies. I love samurai movies. I love Zatoichi, Seven Samurai, uh, Yojimbo, all those kind of movies. And I always want to do a movie with kind of like a lone wandering badass, you know, like the nomadic samurai, you know, like the guy who doesn't want any trouble, but if you try to rob him on the road or whatever, you're going to have a bad day. Like I've always just liked the idea of that kind of stoic uh, 
warrior prophet, you know, warrior priest kind of character. I just, you know, obviously there's a lot of Star Wars in that idea as well. You know, like the whole reason why the Jedi exist in uh, Star Wars is George loved samurai movies and he loved Westerns as well. And when he mixed up all his influences, uh, what came out the other end was Star Wars. With me, it was the Book of Eli as a, a product of, of the, the same ingredients being mixed up, you know, according to a different recipe and so i had i had this very schlocky idea of like a guy with a machete and a bible who was you know kind of prowling the the irradiated wastelands of a post-apocalyptic earth kind of you know trying to bring the word of the lord to the to the heathens and the mutants that lived out in the in the wasteland but it was a very very schlocky pulpy kind of idea and it wasn't until i started to think more about the idea of him carrying a bible and what that might mean but I thought, oh, you know, maybe there's actually an opportunity for this movie to be about something thematically. Like, you know, as soon as you start talking about the Bible and, and religion and faith and Christianity and stuff like that, you know, you're, you're dealing with really kind of volatile material thematically. Everybody has, a, has an opinion on religion and faith one way or the other. So you have an opportunity to kind of say something that, that everyone's going to have a reaction to. And I thought, well, let's, let's, let's explore this. And I think, I can, and again, I don't remember specifically how I came to it. But it was the idea of well, what if it was the last copy of the Bible that he was carrying? Like, what would that mean? Like, what, what what does it mean if the last thing that you're if you're carrying a copy of something that if that's destroyed or lost, that's it? Like, it's all gone from existence. There's no way to ever recover it. And I just thought that was really really interesting. The idea that the, the MacGuffin wasn't something that had you know, material value, like a Maltese falcon or something like that, but something that had intellectual, spiritual kind of intangible value, but nevertheless, tremendous, tremendous value and import. And I just thought that was really interesting. And, and it kind of you know, built from there. And I got, became very, very taken with the idea. You know, writers get obsessed with crazy ideas all the time, whether they're commercially viable or not. And I never really thought of this as particularly commercially viable, like a, a crazy guy with a, with a machete and a, and a, and a Bible and uh, you know, chopping up people's heads because the, the version of the movie I had in my head was really, really violent. I thought no one's going to make this. And even as a baby writer, I, I, have, I have a much keener sense of this now, but even as a baby writer, you know, 15 or so years ago, I was very aware of the fact that, you know, you can't just write anything you want, you know, and, and expect people to make it. If, you're, if you write like the big $200 million, you know, Star Wars space opera, it's really unlikely anyone's going to make that movie. Just really unlikely for all kinds of commercial reasons that should be obvious to most people. But I thought with Eli, I said, well, the thing about Eli is like, it's, there's nothing to it. Like, it's a guy walking around in the desert. And, you know, he walks into one little town, but that's pretty much it. It's not heavily dependent on, it's not, it's not a big cast, doesn't require any, you know, massive production elements, no fancy visual effects. You could make the $80,000 version of that film, like a super low budget film. In fact, I think it'd be really interesting to see what that would look like. And I thought, well, okay, so. It's kind of a nutty idea, but because it's a risk, but because it's a low-budget risk, maybe someone will do it. Who the hell knows? And so I wrote the script very, very quickly. I almost didn't want to send it to my agents. And in fact, I didn't. I knew that if I told them what the idea was, they would say, don't bother writing that. We won't be able to sell it. Like, it's not commercial. But I was so taken with the idea, I didn't want to hear that advice. Like, I already knew I didn't want anyone to talk me down off the ledge. I wanted to write. Come what may, I wanted to write it. The only way I was going to get this idea out of my head was if I wrote it out. And so over the course of about a week, writing for anywhere between 12 and 16 hours a day, I just wrote the script, the first draft of the script, very, very rough version of it in just kind of a, a fever dream, just you know, really, really fast. And when it was done, I sent it to my agents. And at that point, the kind of the die was cast. Hey, look, I've written this thing. What do you want to do with it? And uh, we did a couple of rewrites. 
And they knew it was a weird piece as well, but they were also kind of oddly intrigued by it. And they, once the script was in fighting shape, they sent it out to a bunch of people. And to my eternal surprise, Warner Brothers bought it for Joel Silver to produce. And next thing you know, you've got Denzel Washington and Hughes Brothers and Gary Oldman. I originally imagined the move, like maybe they'll make this for $80,000. They wound up making it for $80 million, which is kind of, in, to this day, still boggles the mind. And I guess if there's a lesson to be drawn from all this is don't let commercial you know, always have always like have a healthy sense of like what is commercially viable you know because you don't want to write things that are so crazy that you fall in love with them and then your heart gets broken when nobody wants to read it or make it but at the same time don't play it too safe either like write what you really believe in i really really believed in the eli story i never really expected it to get made but i was just so in love with it i wanted to come what may i just wanted to have the satisfaction of realizing the story and seeing it all written out on the page even if it never even went beyond the page and because i because i took that risk you know i i have a career today so i'm really glad i didn't listen to any kind of inner voice that might have talked me out of writing it because it wasn't commercial enough let's talk outlines i imagine the first step you were tasked with as far as rogue one would be something to the effect of an outline i'd be curious to know what that looked like where did you even begin to choose what to include in that film what did you have to work from did you go back and watch every Star Wars movie? Tell us about the outline, the early development stages of uh, Rogue One. I went back and watched the original movie, even though I already felt like I knew it frame by frame. I went back and studied it with a particular eye on kind of the Death Star plans angle of it, just to kind of refresh my memory. In fact, Lucasfilms, they had a beautiful new 4K restoration of the original film that they screened for Gareth and I as kind of like a you know welcome on board gift when we first started there. I thought that was very nice. But it was also useful to kind of go back and, Refamiliarized myself with the movie and I and I went back and made notes on the film as I went through anything that would be relevant to something that we might cover in the movie which is set you know if you've seen Rogue One you know it's set immediately like literally like the day before A New Hope and you know you can literally watch those two movies back to back and it plays like one big long four-hour movie with almost no gap between the two and so it's really really important that anything that is talked about or mentioned in A New Hope is not contradicted in Rogue One because, you know, Star Wars fans notice when you get something wrong and boy, are you going to hear about it if they find something that you got wrong. And so it was very, very important uh, to me and Lucasfilm obviously had a close eye on it as well, was to make sure that these two movies lined up canonically and, and uh, you know, all the little details matched up. So, you know, everything from the opening crawl, you know, the Rebels have won their first victory against the Galactic Empire during the battle, you know, Rebel spies stole secret plans. Because I'm thinking, okay, so there's a bad, one thing we know right away is that the plans were stolen in the context of there being some big battle taking place at the same time. So, okay, great. Well, we're going to want to probably want to have a big battle in the third act anyway. Typically, our movies are, are structured with lots of action uh, in the third act. So that's okay. But then just every little piece of detail, like, you know, there's a scene in the Death Star conference room where one of the Imperial officers says to Vader, you have failed to conjure up the stolen data tapes. So I'm writing, you know, kind of writing down as I'm watching it, data tapes, like, there needs to be like a physical object that looks like it can be, they could be like old fashioned tapes. And again, that's, that's good for us as well, because, you know, in the third act, you don't want the plans to be some kind of abstract thing. It's useful to have a physical object for the heroes to be running around with, you know, a MacGuffin that the bad guys can be trying to get back. So just lots of, I, I can give you a hundred examples of that, of like every little piece, every minor detail of the battle, uh, of the way that the plans were stolen, any kind of reference to the plans or the Death Star that were that were in the original movie, we had to make sure that 
that Rogue One kind of leaned into that and doubled down on all the things that we know about how the Death Star plans were stolen from the first film, and certainly not saying anything, adding any details that might directly contradict anything that the original movie says, because, again, you'll be hearing about it for the rest of your life. And what did the outline itself look like? Was it a couple pages, 10 pages? How did you present it to them? Gareth and I worked on it in, uh, in collaboration with the story group people and with John Knoll, who was uh, the guy who originally came up with the idea for the movie before me and presented me with that kind of one-page document or two-page or whatever it was that kind of got the ball rolling. And I can't remember how many pages it was, but I wrote a very, very detailed treatment that was basically every beat of what the movie would be. And we did several of those drafts. You know, you go through development, and this is true not just at Lucasfilm, but, you know, at pretty much all big studios when you're developing a big, big movie, uh, it's very, very rare that they just commission you to go write the script. They, they want to see an outline or a treatment first, and they, they know what they're getting when you work on the script. They sign off in the broad strokes of the story first, develop the story first, and when they're satisfied with the story, they'll, they'll let you go write the actual screenplay. And that's how it was with Rogue One. We spent a long time developing various drafts of a story treatment, and when Lucasfilm were finally satisfied that we had a version of the story that they liked, they commissioned me to go write the script. As far as the Book of Eli... The outlining process for that, you said you wrote it fairly quickly in a fever dream. What did the outlining for that look like? Was that a shorter outline? Was that something very quick? So that is something I can point to in terms, I said there wasn't like necessarily big differences between, you know, the process on an adapted film and on an original. This is probably where the biggest difference was. I personally, if I'm just writing for myself, I don't like to do super detailed outlines because they're boring. Like you're not writing the actual movie at that point. You're just writing kind of the blueprint for what the script is going to be. You don't get to do the fun stuff like write dialogue or action sequences. It's just, you know, kind of this person goes here, does that, discovers this. Like, it's just kind of the nuts and bolts, like a little essay about, you know, what the movie is, like a synopsis of the story that you want to tell. And I don't find that terribly fun to do. And I generally find that I don't do my best work at the story stage because I feel like you're one, at that point, you're one step removed from the actual writing. You're writing about what you're going to eventually write about. It's not the actual writing that you know, is going to be in front of a camera one day. And I generally find that when I'm actually kind of knee deep in the script, like on page 57 or whatever, writing the actual dialogue, it's in that moment I generally tend to have like my better spontaneous ideas. Ooh, like, you know, I, I, could, I could write the treatment version of a scene 10 different ways, but then when I finally sit down to write it on the page, that's when I'll have the idea that, oh my God, this scene's about totally something different. And, that, and for some reason, that's just what the light bulb only really goes off for me when I'm really writing the script. At the same time, you, of course, you do have to have an outline. You need to know where you're going. And this is how my process has probably evolved the most over the years. When I was just getting started, kind of bashing out those scripts, I was very, very keen to like write. Again, the, the, the story-breaking process, the outlining process to me is boring. I want to just skip the boring part and go straight to the fun part, type fade in and start actually writing action and dialogue. The problem with that is, is if you don't plan, if you don't know where you're going, then you're not going to end up anywhere interesting. You're going to write yourself into dead ends and write your, and, and go around in circles, and you're not be, you're not going to be able to like have any you know story. Good stories are structured and planned, and things pay off later because you set them up earlier. And you need to know what you're doing. And so that treatment phase, that story breaking, outlining phase, which I don't enjoy doing, is unfortunately for me necessary. I got to do it, but because I know that I don't do my best work or I don't have my best ideas when I'm outlining, I try to kind of keep the outlining as minimal as possible. Because for a while, the pendulum swung back the other way. After I realized that, you know, not doing an outline was dumb, I was like, okay, well, now I'm going to outline really, really detailed. I'm going to know everything that I write before I write. 
and I would write these really long 30, 40 page treatments. But by the time I was ready to write the script, it was kind of boring because I thought I'd already figured everything out. All I, all I was really doing was kind of taking this very long story treatment and adapting it into a written script. And there was, there was not much room left to actually kind of discover things on the page because I had already kind of plotted everything out. So where I eventually ended up and where I'm at now, like in my own process when I write to myself, is to write just enough of an outline that I know that the movie has a point, it has a plot, I know what the character arcs are, I know what the beginning, middle, and end is, I know what the movie's actually about thematically. I know, I know what all the big questions, I have enough to write, but it's also, at the same time, vague enough in the details that I can have those moments of discovery and eureka moments where I'm actually writing on the page. And, and the outline is malleable enough that if I decided I want to kind of call an audible on page 57 and do something different, I can do that without breaking the entire structure. So for Eli, I really, I literally write, there was never an outline. There was like just what I call a beat sheet. We all call them beat sheets, you know, just kind of, you know, Eli goes here, you know, he meets the bad guys on the road, he kills them, you know, he needs to charge his battery. So he goes to town, discovers this, you know, Carnegie learns about Eli, offers him a job. And it's just like really, it all fit on one page, just these very, very like maybe 200 words that fit onto one page. And that was enough of a roadmap as I needed to give me the confidence to go in and explore the, you're going kind to of start putting flesh on the bones of that skeleton. While you know, I, had, I had enough confidence now, I knew, you know, the twist was there. I always knew that he was blind and you know, the book was in Braille. And so I could start setting those things up, start writing those little giveaways and clues and, you know, trail of breadcrumbs into the script. But it was vague enough that I could have fun actually writing the script. Now that's when I write for myself. When I write for a studio, I don't always have that luxury like you've got to show your work and you know the, the beat sheet that i turned in for eli would not you know, most studios would not accept that as like detailed enough for them to feel comfortable that i've now go away and write the script they want to see a lot more detail and so whether i like it or not i have to write the 20 30 page version of the outline because that's what they want to see to feel comfortable before they'll commission you to write the script i still reserve the right when i actually write the script to make discoveries along the way and to change things as long as you don't radically turn it turn in a radically different movie than the one you promised. But I feel like that's the biggest, for me, the biggest in between the process on an original and on a big studio, you know, kind of commission where they've hired you to adapt something or write something to them is I have to plan and outline a lot more on the studio movie because I have to, again, because that, that's mandated. Like it's literally in my contract that I have to turn in an outline of treatment before I will be commenced to write the script. When I write for myself, I can, of course, do it any which way I want. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network 
and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickr and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. As far as writing the actual script itself for Rogue One, first off, how did you choose the tone, the pacing, the humor? Obviously, Rogue One technically takes place between the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy. In those films, the tones vary quite differently. And the sequels obviously were shot using green screen. The original is more organic. How did you find the right tone for it? How did you choose that and also find a way to kind of blend in between the prequels and the original series? Again, it was it was interesting in that it was more unexplored territory than it was on, for example, episode seven or what JJ was doing on the saga films. The saga films have an established tone. I mean, just set the prequels aside for a moment. Just think about the original trilogy, which is what the sequel trilogy is working off of most directly. You know, there's, there's a tone, and I may not do a good job of describing it, but we, but we all know what the tone is. You know, the, the Star Wars movies, you know, it's, it's a fairy tale. Uh, you know, there's a lot of pathos. It's very melodramatic. There's humor, but it's never, but, you know, never too much. All the humor is grounded in character. It, you know, it's big. There's a sense of like a big family, you know, an epic family saga. It's almost kind of soap opera in a way. And, and you just know it when you see it. And so I think when JJ took on episode seven, he felt, uh, like he and I, I think he did one of the things he did very good a job on with episode seven is honoring that tone like when you went to the episode seven it felt like star wars he he found the right balance of drama and humor and action and it just felt like a star wars saga film with rogue one the challenge was a little bit more uh, different because again lucasfilm was saying hey it's a standalone film you don't need to worry about adhering to all of the tonal templates and and expectations that the, that the saga films have the whole point of this exercise in doing these standalone films is to try and tell different kinds of stories that don't have to conform to those parameters. So that was really liberating in a sense, but also a little bit nerve wracking because we were moving into unexplored territory. You know, there were no, just, just, just because of the, the time and place where the movie is set, you know, there's no Jedi. We always knew there weren't going to be any real Jedi in the film, no lightsabers, anything like that. And it was much more of a military film about the kind of the nuts and bolts of the, of the ongoing war between the rebellion and the empire. And that was a lot of that tone came from John Knoll. Uh, John, who originally came up with the idea for the movie, was uh, riffing on a lot of old-fashioned World War II kind of classic men on a mission movies, you know, Guns and Navarone and things like that. And I grew up on all those movies as well. And that was my pitch. Like this is an old-fashioned World War II men on a mission movie, but in the Star Wars universe. And instead of you know dressing up like Nazis to infiltrate you know the secret Nazi base up into the very Alps or whatever, you know, usually you would see like you know Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood doing stuff like that. Now. And Steve McQueen. Now it's these guys. Uh, but you take all of you take all of the great tropes from that classic genre, and you apply it to Star Wars. And I think that would be really fun. And again, that was that was on the same page that John was on. And then once we got into developing it, Gareth, I took a lot of my tonal cues from Gareth. Gareth was really interested in the idea of telling a kind of slightly more thematically mature film. In that, you know, it's not just here are the, here are the rebellions or the good guys, they're the white hats and the black hats over here, the Empire, and it's no shades of grey. Gareth really wanted the shades of grey. And he really wanted to explore the idea that there could be good people, good, actually morally conflicted people on the Empire side, and that there could be villains on the Rebel side. And that's how we ended up with characters like Galen Erso, who, you know, is the man who built the Death Star, did this terrible thing, but feels really bad about it. And he's desperately trying to find a way to kind of undo the work that he did. He was forced into building the Death Star. And so, you know, historically, 
the man who built the Death Star would be thought of as a terrible villain. Uh, but once you actually get to, you know, kind of the, under, under the skin of that character, you realize that he was forced to do it, that he didn't want to do it. And he, in fact, you know, built a backdoor into the design of the Death Star that would allow the rebels to one day destroy it. And a lot of that came from John, you know, the whole reason why that original story treatment I told you about was called Destroyer of Worlds is um, based on that, you know, after Oppenheimer, you know, after they detonated the first atomic bomb, uh, quoted, I can't remember what it's from, but it's like an ancient Hindu poem, I think I said, Bhagavad Gita, I'm become death, destroyer of worlds. And, you know, Oppenheimer famously felt terrible about having, having unleashed such destructive power upon the world, and that was kind of the idea, that the working title for the movie for a long time, for the longest time, was Los Alamos because Los Alamos was the site where the first atomic bombs uh, in New Mexico were, were detonated, the first tests, the first Trinity tests. And a lot of that DNA went into Galen and this idea that they, uh, even though he was a man building a terrible thing for the Empire, he was a good, conflicted man underneath who wanted to try and undo the horrible thing that he was forced to do. And then on the rebel side, Gareth really wanted, like, a, he loved Apocalypse Now. He wanted to have, like, a, like a scene like an apocalypse now, you know, where Martin Sheen has to go up the river to find Marlon Brando, you know, Colonel Kurtz has gone totally nuts. And we were in a meeting one day and Gareth said, like, I, I really want like the rebels to have like a Colonel Kurtz, like a rebel that's gone rogue. And it's like now has actually kind of crossed the line into being a terrorist, not just a freedom fighter. And I thought the idea was really interesting. And there's used to be, uh, she's not there anymore, but she used to run the story group at Lucasfilm and then it's Kiri Hart, really, really brilliant development executive, he said, you know, George actually has a character in the canon already that could fit that. During the Clone Wars, George created a character for the, for the animated series called Saw Gerrera, who was this kind of militant rebel who was willing to go to any lengths to fight the Empire. And the idea was that, you know, 20 years later, maybe that character's still around. And the idea that he had kind of got bored with uh, the, the rebels kind of, you know, gently, gently approach to fighting the Empire, he was felt that the, the rebels should be much more aggressive. And eventually left the rebellion to form his own kind of hyper militant splinter faction that was that was running around doing the kind of things that the kind of the official rebels would never really do. And so that was that I think was like the most interesting territory for us to explore the kind of the, the moral shades of gray that there could be good guys on the, on the empire side and there could be bad guys on the rebel side because I think you know that obviously far more closely. Uh, reflects reality, the idea that, you know, you can be on the right side, but still do bad things and, and vice versa. Tell us about the characters themselves. Obviously, the characters in the original trilogy are very iconic, charming, well-developed, well-beloved characters. How did you go about creating new characters that could live up to the legacy of those characters before them? I mean, you know, just, just like just like with any big movie, and, you know, Star Wars is no different. Star Wars just gets more attention because it's Star Wars. Like every little change, people, like, kind of inspect it more. But every big studio movie I've ever worked on went through a similar process uh, where characters change, the story changes. You know, Jin was always there. You know, John, John came up with Jin and with KB2 um, and with, you know, some of the, some of the you know, and Cassian and, and Krennic and those characters and, and Galen, you know, the, the Jin's dad, they came along later as we began to develop more. But the core of it, the idea of, you know, kind of a wild bunch, a rogue rebel squad that, that went and stole the Death Star plans, that always stay you know jen jen's character went through all kinds of evolutions as writers came and went you know we kept kind of like you know tweaking her this way and that until we got to the version that you know you finally see on the screen but yeah part of i mean you know i i, I don't know who had the who had the more difficult challenge you know jj gets to play with luke skywalker and, and han solo and 
Princess Leia, but there's also this incredible, incredible weight of expectation that comes with how you're going to handle those characters. And everyone knows who those characters are, so like you better get them right. With Rogue One, we had the you know you think well you know, we don't have many iconic characters because you know these are all these are all characters you've never heard of before uh, and are probably going to die throughout the course of the movie. The only really iconic character we have in the movie is is Vader. We wanted to make sure we had at least one really iconic Star Wars presence in the movie, and Vader obviously ended up kind of fitting that perfectly because he's so closely aligned with uh, you know the very first thing you see him doing in the in the original movie is is chasing down the Death Star plan. So it made total sense that he would be a part of the movie that came immediately uh, before that. But aside from that, we were creating characters that were going to be introduced to the Star Wars universe for the first time, which, again, it may be more of a challenge for the marketing people who have to, you know, sell a Star Wars movie to you based on characters you've never heard of before. But from our point of view, from from me and Gareth and Chris and John and Tony and everyone else who worked on the movie, that was a great opportunity because we, because we could have those characters could be whoever we wanted them to be. What about writing characters for the Book of Eli? How did that differ? Is it the same process from your perspective? I mean, it kind of helps that there aren't many of them. Uh, you know, the, 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 it's a very small, you know, it's really, you know, in terms of the primary cast, it's really just, you know, Denzel, Mila, and Gary, and maybe Ray as well, but, you know, a handful of, of characters, and, and uh, sorry, Jennifer, I should say as well. But it's a small cast of characters. And when I mentioned that I didn't do much outlining, I just had a one-page beat sheet for Eli, that's true in terms of the plot and the story, because the story has very few. I, I, I like stories that have very few moving parts. That the, the story is simple, but the characters and the themes are deep and complex. I've tried writing detective mysteries and time travel stories and stuff like that, and they always give me a migraine because just the logistics, like the flow chart. I don't know if you've ever seen like Chris Nolan's work that he did on Inception, like literally they look like mathematical flowcharts about how all the different timeframes are playing out in you know, parallel to one another. And it's incredibly, incredibly complex uh, work. You know, when, when, you, when you're working on that level that Chris Nolan is, where, you know, his movies like Inception are often very, very intricate, it's like being a watchmaker. You know, the, the intricacy of all the pieces and, the, you know, it, it, and if one piece fails, it all falls apart. That is, when, I think when that's done well, it's incredibly satisfying to watch. I don't know if I'm the kind of writer where that's my specialty, though. Like figuring out like just the just the logic of a story. Like, well, if he was there yesterday, how would this guy know that he did that? You know, all that kind of stuff. Like, so that plotty stuff is the least interesting uh, thing to me. And I think in many cases, the least interesting thing to the audience. I bang on all the time about how character is more important than plot. The example I always use is Beverly Hills Cop. I don't know if you or anyone listening to this podcast right now, unless they're like, you know, massive Beverly Hills Cop, you know, obsessives, could tell you off the top of their head what the plot of Beverly Hills Cop is. Like, do you remember why he was in Beverly Hills? Most people probably <laughs> don't, right? Why did he Why did he go from Detroit to Beverly Hills? Oh, you, know, you might remember, oh, like his friend was killed, but like, why? Like, what, what was it? What was he really investigating? And most people don't remember that because the plot is really just a machine to service the characters, but and that's the one thing I guarantee you do remember from Beverly Hills Cop. You remember Axel Foley, right? You remember his personality, kind of this big mouth bullshitter who bluffed his way in and out of situations and was hilarious doing it, um, but also kind of courageous and noble and was doing this because his friend was killed. Like the character is what is what endures, and so that's kind of how I feel about the movies that I write. I don't care if my stories aren't uh, particularly intricate from like a plot. Uh, or you know, structure point of view. I actually prefer them to be as simple 
as possible. And where I want to do the work is with the character. So when I wrote that book of Eli Beachy, that was just one page. But I also had written like 10 pages on who Eli was as a character because uh, I wanted to really think about who he was before I started writing. And I wrote a lot about you know Carnegie and what his character was all about and where he came from. Like, what was I trying to say with that character? So I did a lot of work in, in, in thinking about the themes and the characters, much more so than they did in terms of plot. Because, again, Book of Eli is the kind of movie I like to write. Very, very simple plot, but hopefully more substance in terms of you know what you know, what there is to actually think about, what the characters are doing and why and what, what the underlying themes of the film are. Back to Rogue One, as you mentioned earlier, it obviously brings a lot of innovation to the way Star Wars films are told. For example, the film doesn't include an opening scroll. There's the use of CGI characters. There's title cards when you see planets. And uh, it doesn't include the wipes, the transitional wipes that we've seen in the original trilogy. I recently heard that you mentioned there was an original scroll. So tell us, when you started writing this, what was your intention on the level of innovation in which you bring to it? Again, all of those decisions were the product of Lucasfilm saying to us, don't be afraid to broaden the language of what a Star Wars film is. Like, you know, play with the expectations. And it was, it was literally one of the very first questions that Gareth and I asked ourselves, should there be an opening crawl? And we took it to Lucasfilm and had that conversation with their executives and we debated the merits of it and ultimately decided that it was better off uh, without one. The more things that we could do to differentiate them from the saga films the better. First of all, there wouldn't be confusion in the market. Because you have to remember, we were coming out between episode seven and episode eight. So we didn't want people to think that this was somehow, you know, if you think about actually how the stories play out linearly, you have episode seven, then you jump 30 something years back in time to do Rogue One in terms of the next release. And then you jump back to the next saga film after The Last Jedi. So it was really important that people, you know, and just consumers, the audiences weren't confused by what these films were. And it was marketing had a job of making sure that these films were were known to be separate from the saga. But one of the ways that I felt that, and I think it was the right choice, and to, to this day I still hear people complaining about there not being an opening scroll. I, I, I'm completely convinced that we made the right decision. Initially, initially, I was really in love with the idea of doing a crawl, just because the fanboy inside of me wanted to write one. And I did write some just for fun. Now, I, don't think, I can't remember if they were ever in any version of the script that I wrote, but I definitely wrote a couple just to have the fun of like what it would be like to write a, a Star Wars opening crawl but then as the conversations went on we decided one way to make a really definitive opening statement literally an opening statement about how this movie is not like the others is we're not we're not going to do all the exact you know the, the very 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 first thing that the film does is counter to your expectations of what a star wars film is every single star wars film opens the first the same way with the big words on the screen the fanfare and the opening crawl well we don't do that and so from frame one, you know that this is, while it's a Star Wars film, because that's what you bought a ticket for, it's not the same kind of Star Wars film uh, that you're used to seeing. We had all other kinds of conversations about the, uh, about the filmmaking language. Can we do a time cut? We always loved the idea of doing this kind of inglorious bastards type opening where you would see Jin as a young child and you would understand what happened to her when she was a kid, but then you would jump forward to meet her again, catch up with her as an adult like 20 years later. No Star Wars movie had ever done that. And so we kept asking ourselves and asking Lucas from the question, Star Wars has never done this. So is it okay if we do it? And what we kept hearing back and what I eventually kind of got on board with was, yes, that's the whole point. Like Star Wars has never done it. That's, that's a plus, not a negative. Like we want to be doing things that Star Wars 
has never done so that we can bring you know, the saga films are going to carry on everyone's expectations they're going to have the crawls they're going to have the john williams music they're going to have the star wipes and the iris wipes and all that kind of stuff but i think what we decided upon was this idea that that language uh belongs to you know, the, the wipes the john williams music the crawls everything else that belongs to the saga films and the saga films specifically and anything else that happens in the Star Wars universe, whether it be it might be Mandalorian, it might be the standalone uh, films, whatever it might be, those have the freedom to to create their own storytelling language and not feel beholden to uh, rules that were you know written down forty years ago. As far as working with Gareth Edwards, you mentioned a few times that he was involved and you worked with him. How did working with him compare to Book of Eli? Did you end up working at all with the Hughes brothers? Or was that kind of just a straight handoff as far as the script getting developed from there? No, I mean, I, I worked very closely with Alan and Albert and Denzel and all of those guys. But again, the, the process in that with Eli was more was more linear. I wrote the script by myself uh, over the course of, you know, the first script, the first draft only took about a week. But then I spent several weeks rewriting it and getting it into you know, the kind of shape where we could actually send it out to studios. And then after we sold it, the Hughes brothers were signed and we got Denzel. And next thing you know, I'm sitting in a room with the Hughes brothers and Denzel and I'm rewriting the scripts based on their notes. Because, you know, Denzel's got a lot of thoughts. The Hughes brothers have a lot of thoughts and I'm rewriting the scripts um, to suit them. And the script's getting better and better because the Hughes brothers are very smart. Denzel's very smart. And the, each draft was better than the last. With Gareth, though, it was much more of a parallel process from the very beginning. Like the only work that I had done was writing writing out the little pitch that I was going to give. Like, here's what I think the movie could be. You know, it can, it can be a World War II movie. It can be this. It can be that. But then as soon as they hired me, I think Gareth was hired, like, literally either the next day or we were almost, like, hired, like, within hours or days of one another. And so the very first time that I sat down to think, like, in a real, okay, I know I'm writing this movie now. What, what do we want this movie to be? I was in a room with Gareth. And that process began between, as a conversation between the two of us, you know, from the very beginning. Back to Rogue One. I know that Chris Weitz and Tony Gilroy ultimately penned the final screenplay. So what did that handoff look like? How closely did they develop the screenplay based on your story? And what was your involvement after that point? So the way that I often analogize it, and again, I, I, I can't stress this enough, this isn't just the way it works uh, with Star Wars, this is how it works on any big studio movie, is it's, it's often like a relay race. It's very, very rare. It does still happen, but it's extremely rare uh, these days with these big, you know, tentpole studio movies, you know, Marvel, Star Wars, Star Trek, you name it, like you know, Harry Potter, the really big ones. It's rare that they are written by just one person from the beginning uh, all the way to the end because the studio, you know, wants to throw every resource at it to ensure that, you know, they don't miss anything in terms of the writing and they develop the best version of the story possible. That obviously can go disastrously wrong. Some of the worst movies I've ever seen are the ones that had the most writers on them. Uh, where they just kept flinging writers at them over and over and over, just to really try to find what was broken, and uh, that can end up being part of the problem. With Star Wars, like I said, it's like a relay race, and this has happened on other movies I've done as well. I run the first, well, I, say, I should say, John runs the first leg, uh, because he comes up with the original idea and a rough, a rough version of the story and the characters. I then run the second leg, where I more fully develop that John's story into a, into a, into a fully, fully-fledged story, a big, you know, big-ass story document, and then I write the first version of the script. By that point, I'm kind of burned out and exhausted and like I've, I've, I've used up all my best ideas. So then the script gets handed off to Chris White, who comes in with fresh legs, fresh eyes, and he runs the next leg of the race. He takes my script, 
he throws out the things that that don't work he replaces them with things that he that he likes better he keeps a lot of the things that work that he likes or you know, he might you know, gary's idea here was really good but what if we like twisted it this way and added this this you know tweak to it and you know things get changed and then when chris is done then uh, tony comes on and he runs the final leg so it's you know it's ne- it's not collaborative between the riders and that chris and i never overlapped chris and tony never overlapped it's like one rider leaves another one uh kind of shows up again a, a, a baton pass in a relay race is really the best analogy uh that i can give to you and the, but then the one thing that remains constant throughout all of that is kind of gareth and the producers and the lucasfilm senior creative team are you know they're on the process from beginning to end even as riders come and go and that's and again in, in the studio development process that's not atypical at all before we move into a couple bonus questions my last question is what's next for you i know you can't talk about specifically but what about your goals what are the milestones you want to achieve would you ever want to do another star wars film first of all i'll give the same answer i always give everyone that star wars if, if lucasfilm were to ask me to do something else i'm quite sure i would say yes because it's it's star wars it's the whole reason why I, I do what i do for a living since i was 10 years old it'll always be very special to me and where i where were they to ask me to do something else i'm sure i would say yes but it's for them to ask like you know i worked on star wars for five years and i got to write for films for television for books for comics i got to do all kinds of cool stuff in the star wars universe and so if that's the end of my contribution i contributed a lot and i will be proud of it to my to my dying day so I, my guess is i'm probably done but you never know in terms of the broader context, again, yeah, I can't specifically tell you what I'm working on right now because everything these days is, you know, kind of NDAs and studios would get very angry at me if I if I revealed on this podcast like what their <laughs> upcoming movies are. But I can tell you that just in general, I'm trying to just diversify a little bit. And even though I kind of built my reputation as a writer of, of these kind of big, expensive, big budget sci-fi movies, they're not always. And this is not. I'm not specifically dissing Rogue One or any After Earth or any of the movies I've worked, the bigger movies I've worked on. They're not always the most fun to work on because they're so big, and you know they're spending so many hundreds of millions of dollars on them that you know it's it's it you know there's a lot of pressure, and often a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and it can be it can be tough to kind of to um, to ride that train all the way to the end of the at the end of the station. So what I'm trying to do, I, I what I where I'm finding kind of more creative satisfaction these days is sometimes in the smaller projects. I do a little comic book project here or a little web thing over there. Or I'm writing a novel where I have a lot more autonomy over what I'm writing. Still, I'm still. I mean, like the movie I'm writing right now is like a two hundred million dollar movie. I'm still doing those big movies, um, and that's what kind of pays the bills. And I, and I still can derive a lot of satisfaction from doing those films. Uh, but what I've realized is that I, I'm not going to be satisfied if I do only uh, those films. Like, so this isn't announced yet, and I'm not going to do it here. But like, I recently sold an original, a much smaller film, which will probably be announced at some point in the coming weeks and that is by far the smallest budget that i will ever have ever had to work with but at the same time it's the most fun i've had writing anything in ages because it's a smaller this goes back to what i was saying about the eighty thousand dollar version of the book of eli the smaller the budget the lesser the risk and the greater the risk you can afford to take the more the financial risk the lesser the creative risk you can you can afford to take and and the same is true and vice versa. I just I just watched The Lighthouse last night, which is a fucking insane movie. If that movie had cost fifty million dollars to make, it would never have gotten made. Because who's going to make that movie for fifteen million dollars? It's so nutty, and there's a very limited audience for it. But you can make it for a much smaller amount of money, and and the risk you know becomes more uh, palatable. So I'm just trying I'm just trying to find a mix. 
going forward of like doing the big juggernaut type films, which can be a lot of fun and there's tremendous satisfaction to be had when they when they work out well, like Rogue One did, but where the creative process can often be, you know, very difficult to navigate. Versus now just trying to trying to develop smaller things where I have more autonomy, like the thing that I just sold, I'm producing that as well. Like they can't fire me as a writer on that one. You know, you get fired from big studio movies all the time. But with with smaller movies where I'm able to exercise kind of more uh, creative authority, I can have. I think I have the uh, the capacity to have more fun and to feel like I've got more more like DNA in the finished product. It's interesting. On the three big movies that I've made, it's been a mix. Like Book of Eli is like ninety five percent me. That's not. I mean, that, you know, that's not to you know. Obviously, Denzel and Allen really made that movie what it is. But in terms of the script and the story, like almost everything you see is there because I put it there. And so I, I feel like I have a lot of ownership over that film creatively. After Earth, I have almost, I felt like I got, I got completely rewritten on that film. And even though I have a screenplay credit on it, I honestly, like I could watch that movie right now and I don't know if I could remember a single scene or line or moment in it that I actually wrote. And so I look at that and it's like, it's kind of cool that my name's on this movie and it's nice to get residuals checks from it, but like I don't feel any ownership over that movie at all because when i look at that movie i don't see anything of mine in it beyond just the kind of the story abstract that i you know the, the, the basic points of the story are roughly the same but like the actual scene work and the dialogue i think there's maybe like five lines of my dialogue in that film or something it's you know it's it's weird and then with rogue one it's kind of somewhere in the middle you know there's a lot of my dna in that film but there's also a lot of chris's dna and a lot of tony's and a lot of john so that that's one where i feel like i have co-ownership of it i you know kind of 50 50 or well, you know, kind of how you how you want to split up between me and the other writers, but I I can watch that movie and gain a lot of satisfaction from knowing that there's a lot of my blood, sweat, and tears in that film that are actually visible on screen. I can point to screen and say that bit was me, that bit was me, and I'm really and that's and that's satisfying. And I'm just trying to get to a process where the stuff that I make in the future, I can point to the screen more often and say that bit was me, that bit was me, other than as opposed to oh that was the other writer that they fired me and, and replaced me with. So just try just trying to get more of a Kind of a pragmatic handle on how to how to approach making things that can not only get produced but can get produced in a way that I can actually you know continue to assert some authorship and say hey Leo I came up with this thing maybe I should be in the room the whole time and that's not the typical standard practice with uh, writers in Hollywood oftentimes after they you know they sell a script or they turn in a draft you know they're let out to pasture and shot in the back of the head and the next writer comes in I'm trying to avoid getting shot in the back of the head as much as possible in for the rest of my career. Gary, are you ready for what we call a series of seemingly random questions? Okay. The first question, we've heard you portrayed a walker in the premiere episode of the Walking Dead TV series. Is that true? How did yes. that come about? And what scene can we find you in? So I was always terrified of zombies when I was a kid. My parents let me watch pretty much anything. And I brought home uh, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead when I was like 10 years old on VHS. And I just watched it. And I loved it, but it also terrified me, and it left me. It scarred my brain when I was a little kid and left such an imprint that to this day, I find it really hard watching anything. I, I haven't watched Dawn of the Dead in probably 30 years. I know that if I watched it today, I would have terrible nightmares. <laughs> so I know Robert Kurtman, his friends of mine, the guy who created The Walking Dead, and we have the same manager. And so when they announced that, and it feels like a lifetime ago now, but when they first announced that they were going to turn Robert's comic into a TV show, I called Robert's manager and mine, same guy, and said, oh, my God, you've got to get me. I want to play a zombie on the show. Like, you're going to need hundreds of them anyway, right? Like, why not, why not me? 
And I thought, stupidly, that it might be a way for me to finally kind of confront my fear of zombies. That if I'm like standing literally surrounded by hundreds of zombies, that this would be a way to, for me to kind of face my fear. It didn't work out that way. But they did get me in full makeup. It was actually really, really cool. So there was, there was, there was a number of like really cool coincidences that took place. I flew out to Atlanta where they filmed the pilot episode. And I'll tell you exactly where I am. It's if you watch the episode, uh, the pilot episode at the end where Rick Grimes rides into Atlanta on horseback and the city is completely deserted. He ends up getting uh, chased down by a zombie horde and they pull him down off the horse and then, and then proceed to kind of eat the horse. And he, he kind of crawls under a tank is at the very end of the episode. I'm one of the zombies that chases him down uh, and, 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 and proceeds to eat the horse. I'm wearing pajamas for some reason in that scene. My, my, my official credit is Pajama Walker. And, um, and it was really cool. So I showed up on the day, and I'm in a holding pen with hundreds of other extras who are all waiting to get their makeup done. And the way that they do it on The Walking Dead, and I imagine this is true on a lot of these kind of zombie-type shows, is they do different levels of makeup based on how much the camera is going to see them. So like the al- they're called the alphas. The alphas are, are in front. The ones that the camera, the one that the camera is closest to, you know, in high definition, you want those zombies to look good. So they get the full prosthetic makeup with like the bleeding wounds and the, and the contact lenses and the really good wigs. And, you know, like they, they, those guys spend hours in the makeup chair. And those are the alphas. And then behind them, further back from the camera, are the betas. And you can imagine they've still got makeup, but like slightly less elaborate. And all the way back to the very, you know, Charlie Delta, all the way back to the last category. And those are literally people with just either like a smattering of face paint or like a, or like a shitty mask that they put on over their head, like a Halloween mask. And that doesn't look very good, but it doesn't have to because they're all the way back. You know, the camera's not getting a good look at them. So basically, the closer you are to the camera, the better your makeup is. And they said, sit in this room and we're going to, uh, we'll start calling you in and we'll decide, you know, if you're going to be alpha, beta or whatever. And I obviously wanted to be an alpha because they get the best makeup. And there's a guy called Greg Nicotero, who's a legend in the visual effects world, in the special effects world. He does all the blood and gore for the Tarantino movies. Uh, and he did the blood and gore for the Book of Eli. Anyone gets their hand or their head chopped off or whatever in the Book of Eli, it was Greg and his uh, visual effects team uh, at KNV that did that work. And I got to know Greg from being on the set of Eli. I was fascinated in what he did. And I would go over to his table and say, oh, my God, like, what's going on here? Like, they told me through this dis- this this uh, severed head and this severed hand, like, how did you make these? And uh, I got to be really friendly with him because he was showing me all about, you know, kind of the, the, the art of the prosthetic um, special effects people. And it was fascinating for me. And as it turned out, Greg was hired to run all the visual effects, all the zombie effects for The Walking Dead as well. And it was this was only like a couple of years after Eli. So when he walked by and he recognized, Gary, why are you here? I said, oh, I'm going to be a zombie. I'm just waiting to see, like, which kind of zombie I'm going to be. He's like, oh, come with me. And he took me to his own trailer and, and gave me the alpha makeup, and he did it himself personally. And I ended up with these crazy contact lenses and this horrible pulsating wound, and it was absolutely disgusting. I think it took like three hours to do it, but it looked amazing. And uh, that's my story. Love it. Next bonus question. Between 1983 and 1999, there are about 16 years or so without any Star Wars films. This is prior to the prequels, prior to the sequels. In your mind as a Star Wars fan at that time, was there a particular style or story or way in which you imagined the Star Wars sequels or prequels would look like? Is there a story that if you could go back in time prior to all this, you would have told? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, I, I, I've never really allowed myself to think about this because what's the point? But like, had they not come to me 
with the Rogue One idea and said, okay, we're going to do Star Wars standalone films, one-off stories. What do you want to do? Pitch us like five ideas. I have no idea what I would have come up with. <laughs> if you ask me that now, I have no idea what I would what I would come up with. So I'm really glad that they handed me a kind of a brilliant, you know, ready-to-wear idea that I could I could work with. Now, you've got to remember, since you talk about 83 to 99, there was no Star Wars on the big screen. There was still plenty of Star Wars on screens because I'm a video game guy. And you've got to remember during that time, you know, the Knights of the Old Republic, X-Wing, TIE Fighter, Dark Forces, Jedi Knight. There were so many great Star Wars games that were being made during that period. And I often think that gets forgotten about. You know, we talk about the comics, we talk about the novels, we talk about, you know, the tabletop games. And there's all this kind of other stuff that was going on in the Star Wars extended universe. Most, most notably, you know, the, 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 the novels, you know, Splinter of the Mind's Eye and Shadows of the Empire and all this kind of stuff that was happening. And there are some great books in those in, in that canon. But you ought to remember the video games for that period, for like more than 15 years, that was the only way to experience Star Wars on a screen, like new Star Wars storytelling on a screen with music, with visual effects, with actors. You know, Knights of the Old Republic is, is still some of the best Star Wars storytelling um, I've ever seen. That whole Old Republic era is really interesting. And they, and they call it the High Republic now. Lucasfilm's getting into that in the publishing space. And I think that's going to be really interesting. So you know, that was just my way of saying I don't think the video games uh, often get enough credit for the work that they did, kind of carrying the can for Star Wars storytelling during the period that George, uh, you know, wasn't, you know, he, where he was just kind of like, you know, not thinking about making the films. For those writers who are listening who do want to write Star Wars stories, I know you uh, had mentioned earlier that uh, trying to get your own space opera developed is a tough challenge. But for those who someday want to be the next Star Wars writer, J.J. Abrams, what is your advice for those who are trying to kind of break into that world? I mean, my advice is to look at what George did, look at what J.J. Abrams did. They went off and made their own stuff and built their reputation off the back of their own original ideas. What I would say to like, George is the example I always give. I get people still to this day write to me all the time or ask me at conventions, hey, I've got a great idea for a Star Wars story. How do, I, how do I get it in front of Lucasfilm? How do I, if I were to write it, how would I show it to someone? And I just, and I just tell, I don't want to be a killjoy, but I just give them <laughs> the best advice I can give them, which is don't bother, just don't waste your time. Because it is a waste of time, I guarantee it. In you know, the 40 plus years that Star Wars has been around, that's never happened. It's never going to happen. Look at, again, be like George. Look at what George did. When George was uh, a young filmmaker, he loved Flash Gordon. He was obsessed with Flash Gordon, and he desperately wanted to make a Flash Gordon movie but he couldn't get the rights. They wouldn't let him do it. Uh, and so what he didn't do was say, well, I'm going to go write my own Flash Gordon fan film or fan fiction because he knew that was a ridiculous idea. What he did instead was take everything that he loved about Flash Gordon and included it in a mix of ingredients that he used in creating something completely unique and new in Star Wars. The whole reason why Star Wars has that opening crawl that we talked about earlier it's because Flash Gordon had one. That Flash Gordon crawl that moves up the screen, you know, go back and watch the old Buster Crab Flash Gordon movies. They all have it. That's why Star Wars has it, because that was what that that was one way that George kind of honored his love of Flash Gordon. But that's as far as he went. You know, he went he then he then went and told his own original story. So take the things that you love about Star Wars, take the things that you love about whatever it is that you love, whether it be Westerns, samurai movies, science fiction zombie movies, horror, who knows? Take those things and find a way to honor them in an original way in, in your own 
uh, original work. If George Lucas had made that, uh, decided to pursue making that Flash Gordon fan film, we wouldn't have Star Wars today. So don't deprive future audiences of what I ama- of whatever amazing original thing you're going to come up with by wasting your time copying someone else's work because that's all you're doing. If you're writing Star Wars fan, I, people say to me, "Oh, well, it's just for practice. I'm just doing it for my own edification." Well, okay, fine, but you could write an original thing for your own edification. And you've actually got a chance of selling that. No one's even going to, I guarantee you, no one is even going to read your Star Wars fanfic, your, your Star Wars fan film. No one's interested. Nobody. And I know it's often hard for people to hear that who really, really want to do it. But if you ever, if you ever seriously wanted to write Star Wars one day, write an original movie that blows everyone else away. And then there's a chance Lucasfilm might actually call you. But that's the only way it's ever going to happen. Non-Star Wars related. If you had to choose one piece of advice from a writing perspective for those writers listening, just in general, is there one thing looking back on your career that you would choose to offer up? Try to find a balance between art and commerce. I remember Alan Hughes always used to say this, and movies, movies, are, movies are a conversation between art and commerce. And what he liked about Eli was that it was a piece of art but he was also commercial enough that he got to make it at a level where you know you can actually put big stars into it and make it at a level where it gets worldwide distribution and everyone sees it. Some movies are 100% commercial. The Transformers films, perhaps difficult to make a case for those films as art, but they're, they're easy to make a case for them as commerce. They make a fortune. But in that case, the, you know, the, the dial is probably set at like 95% art, sorry, 95% commerce, 5% art. At the other end of the scale, you've got things like The Lighthouse. I would say 95% art, 5% commerce. Uh, you know, the things that I try to write are somewhere in between. and Because I, I, I don't want to just write cookie-cutter bullshit, but nor do I want to write things that are only ever going to be seen by six people. And so you try to find a middle ground. So I ask myself every time I sit down to write something, is anyone going to be interested in watching this? And if I, and if I can't convince myself that there is, then I'm wasting, I'm wasting my time because I, I, I'm too old and I've been doing this for too long to waste my time spending six months on something that I might love, but it just, just does not have a realistic chance um, in the marketplace at all. But I will end that by saying this. If you, if you feel torn at the end of the day, always, always let art win. Again, with Eli, if I had decided that the commercial viability of Eli was just not it just wasn't going to happen. I'm not on the phone with you right now. I'm not having this call. God knows what I'm doing. I probably don't have a screenwriting career. I took a, I took a shot on, on its artistic merits rather than its commercial viability. So try, just try and, find, try and find what works for you. But like, don't, don't just write commercial. Don't just write you know, movies because you think this is what people, oh, people like big fighting robots right now in the movies. I should go write one of those. If you do that, you're a hack. It's not coming from a true place. It's got to come from within. It's got to be something you believe in. It's got to be something you love. If you love it, give yourself the best chance of actually making it something that people will watch. You know, always have an eye on how this is going to be marketed, how this is going to be made. Like, what's the way that this movie can actually get made? Well, maybe it's low budget. Maybe it doesn't have to take a big swing. You know, I would advise you probably, like, the first time, for the first script that you write, if you're thinking about, like, what's the first script that I want to uh, try and break in with, don't do what I did and write the, the like what well, my first scripts are. They did the incredibly expensive, big, you know, space battle type things. No, no one's going to make that. Uh, but if you can come up with like a really cool idea that has a cool, a good high concepts and good characters, and it's like, wow, this is awesome. 
but isn't going to cost the world to make, then you might have something. So just just continue, always, always keep an eye on both the creative and the commercial uh, considerations and pros and cons of what it is you're writing. But when in doubt, always, always favor the art. Gary, the last question is, did you have fun talking to us about writing for the past hour and a half? I mean, it didn't seem like an hour and a half, so I'm guessing, I'm guessing the answer must be yes. Awesome. Well, it was fun for us, too. Normally, I would ask you to plug whatever you're working on. I know you can't talk about projects. Did you want to plug your Twitter or shout anything else out? You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Gary Witter, G-A-R-Y-W-H-I-T-T-A. And I also stream regularly on Twitch. I'm, as far as I know, I'm like the, I think I'm the only screenwriter that streams regularly on Twitch. <laughs> and I, I play video games there a lot, but I also do... Uh, writing advice and stuff like that. We actually did a little while ago a Book of Eli kind of watch-along commentary thing where you could watch the movie along with me and I gave like a live commentary track to the movie. I literally had like pages up from the script on the on the screen so you could kind of watch the movie on one screen and see what the page of that scene looked like, you know, on the other screen as it was originally written. So I'm trying to find ways to do fun things like that as well. That's uh, twitch.tv slash Gary Witter uh, is where you can find me there. Amazing. Well, thank you, Gary. We really appreciate your insights, your time. It was an honor, and we had a lot of fun. No worries. Thanks a lot. Thank you, and thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.